Well, good morning and welcome again, especially if you're new or visiting. My name is Tyler. I'm one of the associate priests here. So glad that you're here. As I begin, I invite you to pray with me. Heavenly Father, I pray that you pour out your spirit upon us now and fill this place so that all that is spoken and all that is heard might reveal to us your face, the face of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whom we ask this in all things. Amen. So, we are in the home stretch of our summer sermon series on the Ten Commandments, and this week we are looking at number eight, Do Not Steal. Now, the Ten Commandments might not seem like the most chill way to spend a summer at first glance, like sleep in on a Sunday or come and hear about rules. And the Ten Commandments are the granddaddy of all rules, aren't they? The law that God gave to God's people about 3,300 years ago, uh, after he freed them from slavery in Egypt. The first four commandments about how to relate to God and the latter six about how to relate to each other. It is intense stuff, no doubt. But our job going into the summer has been to disabuse ourselves of any perception of the Ten Commandments as some sort of God-given joy kill. Because the Ten Commandments are rules, yes, but they are rules with a purpose. They're not there to steal our pleasure, they're there to save it. The Ten Commandments are God's words for life, and not just life, but life in abundance that Jesus promised to his followers. He said, I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them, fulfill. He came to show the full purpose of God's law. Not just what it prohibits, but what it promises. And it's that reason, that fulfillment, that promise that we're focusing on with each of the commandments. If you live into the purpose of the Ten Commandments, not just refrain from breaking the rules, but fulfill their purpose, what kind of life will you have as an individual and us together as a community? Now, one way to figure out the purpose of a prohibition is to ask what its opposite is. So the opposite of murder isn't not murdering. The opposite of murder is giving life. But murder was a couple weeks ago. This week, it's stealing. Thou shalt not steal. Don't take what's not yours. So, what's the opposite of stealing? I read a couple news stories in recent weeks that jumped out at me. One was about the end of the U.S. leg of the musician Taylor Swift's current concert tour, which has been shattering sales records. And full disclosure, we love us some T-Swift in our house. I'd like to be the first to officially invite her, I'm talking to YouTube, uh, to join us for worship at St. Paul's when she comes here in late 2024 and brings hundreds of millions of dollars in hotel revenue. But I digress. Anyway, the story was that the eve of the last tour date, the approximately 50 truck drivers for the tour got called into what they assumed was going to be a standard pre-production meeting. And instead, they received handwritten thank you notes from Swift plus $100,000 bonus checks. The head of the trucking company commented that this was a life-changing gift, amounting to a down payment on a home or university tuition for a child, and it turns out the truckers weren't the only ones. Swift has evidently given out $55 million in bonuses to tour staff. Now, part of me wants to downplay this by putting it in perspective. She makes more than $10 million a concert. Her net worth is upwards of $700 million, and she will likely be a billionaire entirely self-made by the end of this tour. Her total ticket revenue is projected to hit $1.5 billion by the time the tour is over. So, yeah, she can afford to be generous, 
but I've never been a billionaire in the making, so who am I to say? I might be like, see ya truckers, who knows what I would do in her situation? Her incredible wealth does not change the fact that she is sharing her money and lots of it that she doesn't have to give to anyone. The opposite of stealing is giving. The opposite of taking what's not yours is giving what is. The other news story was from this past week. Thank God Opimeme Matthew Yeye is a young Pentecostal minister and farmer from Nigeria. His home and crops were destroyed by floods this year, and he was left with nothing. In complete desperation, he snuck onto the rudder of a giant cargo freighter anchored in Lagos. He discovered there three other men had independently decided to do the same thing on the same ship. Imagine that. So now these four strangers sitting on a ship rudder, and when the ship set sail, the four of them stayed in the tiny cavity above the rudder, enduring cold and wet feet from sharks and whales, staying in complete silence for fear that the ship's crew would find them and kill them. After 10 days, they ran out of food. Four days after that, a supply ship saw them. They were rescued by Brazilian police, having crossed the Atlantic. Two have applied for asylum there, including Mr. Yeye. The other two asked to be sent home. Think about that. Think about looking at the rudder of an anchored cargo ship and thinking, that's better than any other option I've got on land. A man can find himself in a situation where the only alternative to taking is dying. And in a world where God has provided enough for all to eat, where scarcity is a man-made phenomenon, it is simply wrong that anyone should face the choice between stealing and starving. So yes, the opposite of stealing is giving, but the opposite of stealing is also justice. Because the opposite of taking what isn't yours is never needing to. The guy on the street begging shouldn't eat or not, depending on whether I'm on my phone or having a bad day. The fulfillment of the Eighth Commandment is a generous people and a just society. Now, to get into this, we're going to look at the wonderful, strange, and I guarantee to most people here, completely unfamiliar section of Scripture that we just heard read for us about the year of Jubilee. It shows us a picture of a society in which the Eighth Commandment is fulfilled. And that vision of Jubilee, I hope, can guide and inspire us in living out the fulfillment of the commandment in our own lives today. So let's turn to the text. We're in the book of Leviticus, chapter 25. And the whole chapter is about the Jubilee year, but for the sake of time, we just heard a portion. I'm just going to give us an overview to begin with. When God saved the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, he pledged to give them a permanent home in the land of Canaan, the promised land. And the agricultural land, which was the lifeblood of this entire nation, then as now, farmers feed cities, it was divided up among the 12 tribes and then subdivided among the clans and then subdivided again among the families. Tribe, clan, family. So you had to keep land ownership within the family. It's not like our real estate market, which changes hands all the time. Your family's land was quite literally sacred, a, direct gift, a, direct, a gift directly from the hand of God. So you've got this stable allocation of land, but then as now life happens. Some people are good at farming, others not so much. People get sick, crops fail. And when this happened, people did what they had to do. Sometimes they sold land to a relative. Sometimes they sold themselves to a relative in a form of indentured servitude. 
And what that meant was that over time, the original equitable distribution of the land between the various tribes, clans, and families could start to fall apart. And I'm still working on the setup for the Jubilee year, so hold this thought. Second part, as we heard in the opening verses to chapter 25, alongside this gift of land was the law that required a Sabbath year for the land. So if you've been listening to the series, you know that the fourth commandment is keep the Sabbath every seventh day, do no work. Well, just so, God required a Sabbath year for the land. Every seventh year, the land was to be left to rest. And as you can imagine, this required a significant amount of trust that God would bring a good crop that year. So we've got this allocation of land, and you've got every seventh year as a Sabbath for the land, which brings us to the Jubilee year, which was the Sabbath of Sabbath years. After the seventh Sabbath year, so seven times seven, 49 years, the 50th year was the year of Jubilee. Our English word Jubilee comes not from jubilation, but from the Hebrew word for ram, yobal, because the ram's horn trumpet was sounded to kick it off. That's there in Leviticus verse nine, 25, verse 9. And the 20, 50th year was a national and cosmic reset. So no matter what had happened to you over the last 49 years, in the Jubilee year, everything started fresh, just like it had been when God first brought the people out of Egypt. If your family had sold land, it reverted back to you. If you'd sold yourself or your family, you were set free. Debts were canceled, order restored. And the foundation principle for all of this was Leviticus 25, verse 23, the land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine, God said. With me you are but aliens and tenants. God brought the Israelites out of Egypt through his strength, not theirs. The same way God woke us all up this morning, through his strength, not ours. They had no right to be in that land. It was God's gift. They had the leasehold, not the freehold, on the land that sustained their lives. And the Jubilee was a twice-a-century reminder of that. And not only that, but the theological truth that everything, the land and its bounty upon which we so precariously depend, is a gift from God. And the way that we treat the land and each other should reflect that fact. So what's all this have to do with the Eighth Commandment? Well, the Jubilee helped create a society that fulfilled the commandment, fulfilled the commandment generosity and justice. The generosity came from Jubilee's reminder that all ownership in the end is a fiction. All our material wealth comes from God and we take none of it with us when we die. Life makes renters of us all. There's this short story by Tolstoy called How Much Land Does a Man Need? It describes a peasant trying to acquire more and more property and in the end the effort kills him and the last line is six feet from his head to his feet was all that he needed. It's like that brutal parable Jesus tells where this farmer has a surplus crop and instead of giving it, he decides to build a bunch of barns to store it. And God says, you fool, you're dying tonight. Who's going to inherit what you're leaving? And when we ask the Lord for our daily bread, there's a real sense that anything more than what we need is given to be shared. The great 4th century bishop of Constantinople, John Chrysostom, told his wealthy congregation that not to share our own wealth with the poor is theft. We do not possess our own wealth, but theirs. That's why generosity is one of the five rhythms of life here at St. Paul's. And if you are new here, let me tell you, you are joining an extraordinarily generous group of people. I have seen this in action and been blown away with it in my short time here. What we do with our money, which is God's money, matters. 
And jubilee and justice, well, that's kind of obvious, isn't it? What the jubilee meant was a realistic, God-given barrier to the limitless accumulation of generational wealth. It envisions a society where not everybody has the same amount of money, and that's okay, but there are limits. Like, imagine you're an Israelite who's really, really bad at farming. This would be me. (laughs) This would be me. In God's plan, my failure in my life shouldn't mean that my grandchildren have to inherit abject poverty in theirs. Right? Conversely, you might be really, really good at farming, like providing countless jobs for your community, building a business that brings wealth to your community. And that's incredible. That should be celebrated. Scripture celebrates enjoying the fruits of your labor. But the success in your life doesn't mean that your grandkids should spend their lives in leisure deprived of the privilege of working. The 50-year reset of the Jubilee year set profound boundaries on wealth inequality. Within the span of a normal human life, you'd see the Jubilee at least once, maybe twice. You'd see the community restored to something approximating its original God-given status with every family equal before God. Generosity and justice. That was the idea, at least. But here's the kicker. It is not at all clear that the Jubilee was ever practiced. You don't hear about it later in the Bible, and you would, right? It's a big deal. The scholars are divided on why this is so, but the explanation that makes the most sense to me is this. The Jubilee was an ancient law going back to Israel's founding covenant with God, but later in Israel's history, when most of the Bible was written, bad stuff happened. The monarchy went power crazy. People were dispossessed from their families and land through war and slavery, and so as one commentator puts it, the Jubilee year wasn't practiced, not because it was economically infeasible. You can do anything if you put your mind to it but because the tie between families and the land had been so profoundly erased that the restoration that the Jubilee promised, though absolutely necessary and demanded by God, simply wasn't available anymore. Jubilee was intended to counter injustice, but if you let go injustice go unchecked for too long, it hits a point where it can't be undone. And this is a sobering tale with ample resonance in contemporary Canada for those with ears to hear it. But here's the thing, just because ancient Israel messed up in keeping the Jubilee year doesn't mean that this vision of generosity and justice stopped being the will of God. Because over a thousand years later, after God gave the law, Jesus stood up in a synagogue and read from the prophet Isaiah. It's Luke chapter 4. He said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to bring good news to the poor, release to the captives, sight to the blind, let the oppressed go free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the year of the Lord's favor, that's the jubilee year. Jubilee, that's literally what Jesus said he was here to announce. But not just an economic jubilee, a a cosmic jubilee, a cosmic reset. When the human-made injustices of this world would be undone, when people would be released from their spiritual and earthly oppression, when they would return to the original spiritual patrimony that God had given them. And as the prophet Amos said, Justice would roll down as waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. So listen, if you're stealing, knock it off. Stop and return what you've stolen. It's not a minor offense. Aside from whatever damage you're doing, you're declaring with your actions that you don't trust God's provision for you and you're trespassing on God's provision for the person you're stealing from. And if we think we're not stealing because we haven't committed grand larceny, think again. We think we steal whenever, sorry, we steal 
whenever we take what's not ours to have, whether that's fudging our taxes or shoplifting, cutting corners at work or withholding our surplus from the poor. But even if you're not stealing, don't be content with that simple obedience like eighth, done, check. Think about where in your life you can live into the Eighth Commandment's fullness, the generosity and justice that it offers and demands. In Les Miserables, book, musical, or film, no snobbery here, they're all great. We meet Jean Valjean, the protagonist who's just been released from 19 years of hard labor. I'm blessing you all by not bursting into song right now. Five years for stealing a loaf of bread to feed his sister's starving children, 14 more for trying to escape. Valjean lives in 19th century France, a society that preaches the Eighth Commandment hard. Five years for a despairing petty theft, but without a hint of jubilee, relief, or grace. And the irony is that this society that punishes petty thefts so harshly is itself based on ancient thefts, wealth unchecked by jubilee, thefts so vast and buried so deep that their only traces are in the titles of the moneyed aristocracy. Valjean is unsurprisingly bitter and destitute. As an ex-con, he can't find a hotel that will take him. He finds shelter in the humble residence of the local bishop, Muriel. During the night, he steals the bishop's silverware, and he flees and is immediately caught by the police. He's going back to jail for life. But Muriel tells them that the silver was a present, and he also presses two silver candlesticks on Valjean, saying, you forgot the best part. When Muriel and Valjean are left alone, the bishop tells Valjean, my brother, you belong no longer to evil, but to good. It is your soul that I am buying for you. I withdraw it from dark thoughts and from the spirit of perdition, and I give it to God. Valjean is a breaker of the Eighth Commandment. He's a thief. But it's complicated. He spent 19 years in prison for stealing, but the Eighth Commandment wasn't given so that men could rot in jail for trying to feed their families. The commandment was given to show our God-given relationship to the needful material things of this life. And here, Muriel, servant of God, shows Valjean the true purpose of the commandment that Valjean has suffered so long for breaking. Because Muriel gives what is his to a man who took what was not his. And this act of generosity, the bishop creates justice, offering redress for the injustice that Valjean has endured in his imprisonment. It's a reset. It's a fresh start. It's the possibility of justice and more than justice. The candlesticks are jubilee. They don't undo the past, but they change the future. And the rest of Valjean's life plays out as one long act of thanksgiving for the grace of God that he encountered through another man's kindness. The candlesticks are salvation in real time a material manifestation of the grace that God shows to us on the cross of Jesus Christ. We are a people who have been bought with a price far greater than two candlesticks. Lawbreakers forgiven, and not only forgiven, but blessed. Thanks be to God for his generosity and justice. Amen.